0: Well, this morning, as we continue on through Book 4 of the Psalms, as has already been read for our Old Testament reading this morning, uh, we come to Psalm 97. And once again, this morning in Psalm 97, we are struck right off the bat in the beginning of the Psalm with that glorious declaration, that glorious affirmation, that the Lord reigns. And as we hit this stretch of the Psalms, it just comes upon us in glorious wave after wave, of the reigning sovereignty of our God. And again, I can't think of anything more, well, not just appropriate, appropriate is too tepid a word, Uh, anything more comforting, anything more encouraging, anything more motivating than this truth, Uh, especially in our time when indeed it feels like the ground is constantly shifting under our feet In just every arena of life, there's nowhere where we look where it seems like there is stability. And yet, in the midst of all that, we are reminded that our God reigns. We're reminded as the storm rages and the waves crash over our boat as it was with the disciples in Mark chapter 4, that Christ is in our boat and he is sovereign. And when he stands and says peace, there will be peace. There's no argument. When he says peace the wind and the waves stop. And that's the God that we serve. And he reigns now. The psalm begins with that declaration in the present. Not our God will reign. Many Christians can get caught into that, that one day Christ will reign and won't that be a glorious day? And it will be a glorious day in the future, of course. But this statement in the Old Testament even and for us as we read it, is in the present. The Lord reigns right now in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves, in whatever age we find ourselves, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the age of Christ, or whether it's the 21st century, our God reigns. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the news that we're to proclaim to all the nations. In fact, in the, in the uh, psalm just prior to this, the, the psalm that we uh, looked at last week and the, what was our call to worship this morning, again, the, the call of that psalm, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations his wonders among the peoples. This is to be the message that is on our lips, and he's calling all creation to do this. And one of the wonderful things about our psalm is that we're told in this psalm that this is exactly what creation does. Creation sings the praise and the glory of God. Well, let's jump into this psalm and think about it here this morning. Again, it begins with the reigning of our Lord. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the isles be glad. And then in verses two through, well, two through five, let's say, <clears throat> we have this description, this very poetic uh, graphic. Uh, I say graphic in the sense that we can, we, we're giving all of these images by which we can reflect upon the, the, our reigning God uh, and hear it again. Uh, our God reigns, then verse two, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. We get this magnificent image, very uh, strong could be intimidating image, uh, which would be utterly appropriate in imitating uh, a, a intimidating image of the glory of God. First, again, we have the reigning God. He's sovereign over all the earth. He's seated upon a throne. I've mentioned before that when John begins his vision in Revelation chapter four, the spirit says, come up here. I want to show you something. And John is taken up into heaven to begin to get this heavenly perspective on his age, on the age in which we live, um, on, the, on the state of things. When he's taken up in Revelation 4, the first thing John sees is a throne. He sees a throne. And he doesn't describe the one seated on the throne except in things like this, just in colors and a rainbow and these kinds of things. But John sees a throne. Our God is, if he is anything, is sovereign. He reigns. He is a king. He is a God who deserves and who demands worship and obedience unto him. So he is sovereign. We get that and we spend some time on that. But then in verse 2, this sovereignty is surrounded in thick clouds. The, The image here is that of mystery. Awesome. Mystery. Right. Our sovereign God clouds and darkness surround him. Now, now the darkness that that is spoken of here is not the darkness like like John speaks of darkness in first John, where it's like light and darkness, good and evil. But here the darkness means this impenetrable, uh, um, uh, this darkness that's impenetrable to our vision to our knowledge. He is surrounded by thick clouds and we can't perceive him. We can't we can't penetrate into the very nature of his rule and his sovereign reign. The, the Lord is reigning, but if you're like me, you look around the world and you would like some answers. I, I don't mean that in sort of an authoritative way, but you would just love to know what God is doing. How often do we look back in history, or look on a global scale, or a national scale, or even all the way down to a personal scale, and wonder what the Lord is doing? This makes no sense. I can't, Lord. I I I I like to think I'm tracking with you, but I'm not tracking here. I this this makes no sense to me. Now, for us, I I know if if pressed it doesn't it doesn't cause us to question whether or not god is reigning i think we take it as a as a given that he is reigning but it certainly may do that for many people it does not appear that god is reigning when evil is allowed to dominate or apparently dominate when sin and suffering seem to have the day it's it's we scratch our heads and we it makes no sense to us just like i i think it probably made no sense to joseph when he found himself being sold to uh, to Ishmaelite traders, and when he found himself being betrayed by by Potiphar's wife, and thrown into a prison, and then forgotten by the the the, the cupbearer, and so forth, it's just how can we understand these things? God's ways, His sovereignty is shrouded in mystery. Dark clouds surround Him, and I can't penetrate it. My mind can't penetrate what He's doing. One of the things that I want us to think about in this psalm, the big question I'm going to put to you is, is, so what do we do about that? How do we handle the nature of God? How do we handle the mystery of God? There's two ways we can handle it, right? It's just like everything. We can handle it in a way that's rebellious or we can handle it in a way that's submissive. How will we handle the impenetrable darkness of his mystery? Our nature as human beings is to kind of raise our fist. How dare you not explain to me? I want answers. This doesn't make sense to me. How will we handle it? Our God reigns. Clouds and darkness surround him just like they surrounded him at Mount Sinai. I think that's an image we have here. I think this is a like an Exodus 19 kind of image, right? With God there atop the mountain and thick clouds come over the mountain while Moses is up there and there's thunderings and there's lightning and all these kinds of images but you will remember what Israel did at the base of the mountain right that they were not satisfied with this they were not satisfied with the fact that Moses goes up there and he's up there for these 40 days and we don't know what's become of him so let's let's have a god that we can relate to. A god that we can manipulate, that we can mold. And so they mold the golden calf. I think that that story is there for us, as you know, as Paul says in First Corinthians ten. These things were are there for you as examples, lest you follow them. It's our nature to kind of be put off by the God of Psalm ninety seven. It's it's our nature to be repulsed. By a God who reigns, by a God who, who is surrounded by thick clouds and by impenetrable darkness of mystery, who doesn't explain everything to his creatures, and who calls us instead to submit and to trust, even in the midst of the storm. Don't forget, Jesus gets up and rebukes the disciples in Mark 4, as the as the waves are coming over and their hair's on fire, and they're thinking they're about to die all sentiments we can relate to because we've been there. But Jesus has zero sympathy for their, whatever the adjective, their panic, their panic. Oh, you of little faith, he says to them. So we are chastised, right? There's there's no, hey, but yeah, but that was really rough. Do we trust him or don't we? Are we satisfied with this God, the God of Psalm 97? Again, this is the question. It's kind of put to us here because we're going to see a very stark contrast here on the backside of this psalm. The God of Psalm 97 is a God who reigns. He's sovereign over all things. He is a God who is surrounded by mystery. Thirdly, he is a God who is righteous and just. There's no defense of this here. It's just declaration. Let the rest of the scriptures be the defense. Let the rest of the scriptures be the evidence that's cited. The psalmist feels no need to do it. He just simply declares it. In some ways, I would love our apologetics and our evangelism to be like this. Just declare it. I don't have to always make the case. It's true. Doesn't mean I shouldn't ever make the case. And the scriptures do. But here, no. It's just declaration. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's the kind of thing we have to remember in the midst of the thick cloud and the darkness. When I don't understand this moment, when I don't understand why the wicked are prospering, when I don't understand why chaos seems to be overwhelming order, when I don't understand why sin is allowed to flourish and why the righteous seem to suffer, when I don't understand these things, what do I do? What do I think about God? What do I think about Him when it makes no sense to me and He's not giving me answers, which most times He does not? Again, the psalmist just affirms righteousness, justice are the foundation of his throne. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? this This is what... You know, Paul in, in uh, Romans 12, in our word of exhortation this morning, on the back end of Romans 12, again, right, I, I mentioned then that Paul is teasing out, though I don't think he's directly ha- has Psalm 97 on his mind, but nonetheless, he's teasing out the implications of Psalm 97. He's teasing out the implications of the fact that God reigns. If God reigns, And justice and righteousness are the foundation of His throne, whether you see it in the moment or not. Well, then you could do good to those who do evil to you. You don't have to avenge. Because God will avenge. God will set all things right. You can rest. You can be at peace even in the midst of wickedness and chaos. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do things to pursue righteousness and justice. Of course, God God uses us as secondary means. So yes, we should pursue righteousness and we should pursue justice and we want to see justice prevail within our land and we want to see righteousness prevail globally. Of course, of course, go for it. But when you see it failing, when it seems like your efforts are a little drop in an overwhelming sea of injustice, or unrighteousness, or chaos, or affliction and suffering, what do we do? We we trust what the scriptures say, that our God is one who has righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne. He is going to set all things right. The image is frightening, frankly, if we are not his children, Verse 3, a fire goes before him. Last week we considered in in the book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. We mentioned last week that we have too small a view of God. We have a tame view of God. We have a tame view of God. But our God is a consuming fire. He didn't seem tame on Mount Sinai. The people were begging Moses not to make them talk to God. And please don't let God talk to us. You talk to God and then come talk to us. But please don't make us talk to him. I mean, think about that. Do you have that image of God in your head? I mean, we kind of, we have domesticated God. I don't know when it started, but certainly in our time, we have a domesticated, tame view of God. He's not wild, right? Remember, remember the line with uh, Mr. Beaver to to Lucy in in uh, in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe* when she asks about Aslan, asking whether or not this lion—he's a lion. You want you? We're gonna go see a lion. Well, is, is he safe? She asks. like, is it safe to go see a lion? This doesn't seem like a wise idea that we're gonna, the one thing we've got to do is go find this lion. We're afraid of a witch, so let's go find a lion. Is he safe? She asked Mr. Beaver. And he says, oh my, no. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. But he's not safe. He's not tame. He's not dom- this is not some domesticated lion. He's, he's thundering and lightning up on the mountain. He's shrouded in a, this amazing cloud. He's not safe. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. There's a, there's a hard image. Those who stand opposed to this God will be consumed like wood, hay, and stubble. A fire will go out and consume them. Who can who can raise their fist to this God? Who will resist? A fire goes forth and burns his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains, mountains in the Bible are, are symbols of great kingdoms. And these mountains melt like wax at his presence. Right? just think of the great, the great kingdoms of the of their day. You know, the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and then later the Greeks and the Romans and just go on through time, the great powers. When he thunders and lightnings, and you see this cloud of darkness. You ever, you ever see like, I love it because my house sits on a on a hill and I look out to the west, and there's the 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 Shungam Ridge. And so many thunderstorms kind of come to the ridge, and they kind of go up the ridge, and they leave us alone for the most part. <laughs> they go up there, but I we sometimes we just get an amazing light show at the back of my house. We're looking out to the ridge, and there are those times when it's far off, you don't even hear the thunder. You just see the lightning, and it'll it's in in the dark of night, and you can, of course you can't see anything. It's dark until this lightning. <laughs> that's like inside these massive cumulonimbus clouds just takes off and the whole cloud just lights up from the inside. It's awesome. And this this is like this small little image of the power of our God. It's just in the midst of the darkness. You know, just This force and this light that just lights up this cloud. And when the kingdoms see it, they tremble. They tremble, they melt, they seem like something so solid, they're mountains. But in his presence, they become gooey. Their knees buckle, they fall apart. See, we can't even imagine this. We almost think that's never going to happen. That the powers of this world, will, their knees will go weak. That the rulers of this age will melt away like wax. Again, do, do we believe that this God is the God we proclaim? This is the God that we serve. These are the declarations we are we are allowed to make because the scriptures make them. Beware, all ye nation. I just read with my with the kids in our morning assembly. We read responsibly Psalm 2. You know, Be wise, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. For he will dash the nations like pottery with a rod of iron. Be wise. Kiss the sun lest you perish. Strong language. And the day is going to come. And I'm sure throughout history, the Lord has done it in individual rulers where they will melt like wax. This is our God. This is the God that we serve. Now, again, the question then that this psalm brings us to now, so we get this awesome image and wonderful graphic portrait of the greatness of our God in a, in a way that that describes him by speaking around what he is just very revelation esque uh, you know revelation you know it doesn't describe him it just says he's like this and he's like that but now the question of the psalm is what does that do to you like how do you process that What response does this create in you? Because think of fire. And fire, fire's fire. Fire's not a problem. Fire's only a problem depending what material you're made out of. Fire, fire, to wood, hay and stubble, fire is horrible enemy. Like to the scarecrow in in Wizard of Oz, like anything but fire. Right now, the Tin Man—he wasn't scared at all of fire. When the witch came throwing those big fireballs, you know, does anybody watch Wizard of Oz? Uh, uh, But you know, as a kid, it was like it was—I don't know. Just it would play on TV. Of course, we only had three channels, and when when when, uh, so for you listeners, yes, I'm very old. But but when you know, and when Wizard of Oz would come on and be like, "Oh wow, we have to watch it," and then I'd say, "Oh no, why did I choose to watch this? I'm so scared of the the witch," you know. And but that scene, that scene where she'd come after the Scarecrow. She'd sit, on, she'd sit on top of the house with those flying monkeys which were just the worst thing and and then she just whips up, she whips up a fireball and throws it at the at the scarecrow. And if, you, yeah, if you're a scarecrow, nothing's worse than that. Fire is horrible enemy. Fire is a great weapon. But if you're the tin man, it doesn't bother you at all. Right? Rain bothers you. If, if your wood, hay and stubble then the consuming fire of God is is just horrific. But if you're gold, fire's your friend. If you're gold, you don't fear fire. You love fire because fire purifies you. Fire takes away the dross. It, It separates the impurities and makes you pure and beautiful. Gold doesn't run from fire. Gold covets fire. Gold thrives in fire. So what are we? Right? Enemies melt like wax when they see this horrific image of this thundercloud that's just ripping and roaring and that's consuming. But that's not what his children do. So we have before us then, sort of as the Psalms often do, this dichotomy right? The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord the whole earth, the heavens uh, at, excuse me, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. the heavens declare His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols, who worship uh, worship him, all you gods. So on the one hand, we have these people who melt like wax. they tremble terribly. They're put to shame. They're consumed in the fire. There's that group. And then in verse 8, there's another group. Zion hears. Now remember, we were just told that this one group, at the presence of the Lord, the whole uh uh the, the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the mountains melt like wax, and the peoples tremble. But in verse eight, Zion hears and is glad. This, this amazing power, the reigning of the Lord, the consuming fire, the nature of his holiness, justice and righteousness. When, when you hear justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne, one group goes, oh no. One group pees their pants. One group, like in the book of Revelation, cries out for the mountains to fall on them. So they don't have to endure the wrath of of this one. One group does that. But there's another group. And the second group, Zion, hears the exact same thing. Sees the exact same thing. And is glad. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. We get this in the Psalms that we've already been reading, right? This call to rejoice because the Lord is going to judge the world. And again, it's just one of those things where like, oh, I've never really thought about rejoicing in God's judgment. But the Psalms again and again and again, not only call us to rejoice, but they point at creation and go, look, they're rejoicing. The islands are rejoicing. The trees are going to clap their hands. The heavens are singing over this. The heavens are so exuberant about the fact that the God who reigns is one day going to consume the world with fire and purify it. They are singing and they're clapping their hands over this. All the islands are glad. Join, join the chorus. One group trembles. One group says, let the mountains fall on me. And the other one joins the chorus of all that all nature sings, right? And praises God and is glad to know that at the base, at the foundation, when all is said and done, there will be justice and there will be righteousness and that the sovereign reign of this mysterious God will rule and set all things right. They will rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high above all the earth you were exalted far above all God. See, this is what makes people, this is what makes them sing. The, the, the word and the challenge to us then is, again, where are we? Are we cultivating hearts that yearn for that? Or do we find ourselves down again in the boat with the disciples in Mark 4, so consumed by the stormy sea, so consumed by the circumstances surrounding us that we are unable to sing, that we're unable to rest. Again, don't forget, Jesus was asleep in the boat. He was resting in the midst of the storm. He was He knew this. He, he knew Psalm 97. And so the exhortation to us at the end of the psalm, and I entitled the psalm off, I, I entitled this sermon off of verse 11 gladness or joy for the upright if if we're to hear and to see the fire if we're to see this image on the on the top of mount sinai and sing and rejoice well there's joy there's light sown for the righteous and joy or gladness for the upright in heart so how can we cultivate a life that sings in the midst of the trouble. A a soul that is confident and that looks forward to and rejoices in the fact that this mysterious God will, in his time, set all things right. Well, here's the exhortation. You who love the Lord hate evil. Don't flirt with it. Don't dabble with it. Don't make deals with it. Hate it. We've heard it here. We heard it in Romans 12 in our word of exhortation. We heard it in 1 Thessalonians 5 in our New Testament reading this morning. Hate what is evil. St. Augustine said, this is what true education is, is education is getting your affections right. That is, it is getting them in order. Learning to hate the most despicable things the most. And learning to love the most lovable things the most. And then everything else in the proper order. I must be careful not to love Christina the way I love God and I must not love baseball the way I love Christina and I must not love cheeseburgers the way I love baseball because baseball's better than cheeseburgers so you got to keep you got to keep those things but all things must be in their proper order and what sin is is when we get things out of order we get we love things um inordinately Augustine said and so the Christian life is one of ordering our affections, learning to love things in their proper place. If Christina slides above God, which is always a temptation, either merit or my children or whatever slide up. This is God is always right. Sinking in our list, we get the fact that I, I shouldn't love the Dodgers more than I love Christina. That's a given. You know, if you see that, it'll be very obvious. You know, and you will rebuke me. All right. If I start loving cheeseburgers more than I love my children, okay, that's going to be a big problem. It's going to be obvious. But loving my children more than I love God, you'll almost identify with me on that. and therefore you won't probably chasten me. You won't chastise me on that because you'll get it because can you really love your children too much? You know? who would, who would you know blame somebody for loving their children too much or their spouse too much, or you know, their job, you know and really? God is always sinking in our affections list, but we, we must love him in his proper place. We must love God and we must hate. And in, in the 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 the, uh, the other side of that is we love God and we hate evil. Hate it. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints, he delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Again, there's the confidence in the midst of the cloud. I affirm this. I must believe this. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must be men and women who are upright of heart. We must be those who pursue the sanctification of our own hearts and lives, who pray diligently that the Lord would orient our gaze toward him and set him in our own hearts as chief among all things. Gladness, joy, the way that you become not like the idolaters who melt like wax and who tremble and call the mountains to fall on them is you are men and women who are upright of heart. Your vision is clear. You see God for who he is. You know he reigns and you love it. Rejoice then in the Lord, you righteous, for they're the only ones who will rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, be like Zion that hears this and is glad and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Our hearts are prone to distraction. We are prone to be overcome by the circumstances that surround us. But Psalm 97 reminds us that our God reigns. And brothers and sisters, again, may we cultivate hearts that find that as something to sing about and something to rejoice in. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we do not love you as we ought to, and that, Lord, we often flirt with evil. We look twice. We gaze when we should look away. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us and forgive us. Purify our hearts So that we may not fear the fire, but desire it. That we might be those who, even when the fires of affliction come, we will know that you, our God, are doing a great work in us, through us, and for us. Because in your hands we are gold and we are being refined by that fire. Father, we trust you in the midst of the chaos of our times that at the base of your throne are justice and righteousness. And we trust, Lord God, that you are a God who preserves the lives of his people, the souls of his people. So fill us with confidence. Fill us with joy. Fill us with awe and forgive us for our domesticated view of you that so distorts uh, our vision of you and distorts our own pursuit of holiness. Remind us that you are the one true God who reigns, a consuming fire, Lord God. And as such, you love your people. Strengthen us into greater obedience, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.